Welcome to Reframed, a podcast created to educate, encourage, and inspire parents and professionals. The research is clear. Parenting a child that has a history of loss, abuse, neglect, or trauma requires parenting skills and insight to be reframed. We partner with child welfare experts to bring you evidence-based and research-driven information. Guests strive to make an impact on our world by creating conversations about topics that are important to you, your family, and our communities. Welcome to today's episode of Reframed. I'm your host, Tiffany Anderson. Today, we welcome Gladney's Bill Porter. Bill is the director of post-adoption here at Gladney and has spent over 22 years working with at-risk youth. Yeah, so after I graduated, I started working with um, uh, in a residential treatment with adolescents. And that was there in Oklahoma, uh, young kids who were had a lot of addiction, you name it, meth, crack, um, prostitutes, their gang members. We I started off in that field, and it really um, was uh, it was really sad, but also really really rewarding. And since then, I've been working with different populations. I've worked with juveniles on probation. I've worked with a lot of um, I've worked in a college dorm and in, in a freshman dorm. Um, I was a probation officer for a while. Uh, and then now I've kind of landed in adoption. Uh, that's where I really found my passion. I really feel like adoption changes everything. Well, that's incredible. And I'll tell you, it is such a pleasure to work alongside someone as special as you who really has brought their career full circle and is really advocating for those that don't have a voice or an opportunity to really speak up because of their experiences. Um, others might have blinders on or, you know, just simply don't hear them asking for help and you were able to do so. Well, neurobiology is certainly a topic that I would love to kind of dive in today. I mean, you shared your passion to help people to understand neurobiology and its connection to how we deal with stressors. I'd like to obviously build on that today, um, specifically talking to neuropathways and the power of being vulnerable and overcoming obstacles to live life fuller. Um, in season two, you specifically shared the connection between neurochemistry and attachment styles. Now that we understand a little about neurochemistry, explain further what attachment theory is. So um, I've been a recipient, I've been very blessed to have learned a lot about attachment through Dr. Karen Purvis at TCU. Uh, through her work at TBRI, she really brought a lot of us who were, had been in the field for a while and working with at-risk kids, but we had never really fully understand, or I'm sorry, we had never fully understood um, the impact of neurobiology. And, and when you see a child who's coming from a hard place, um, what you also begin to realize is that the reason that potentially they're coming from a hard place is because their childhood was tough, that their experiences uh, were hard. And those early relationships, the early relationship with a mother figure um, really impact the way that this child will develop, the way that they will, um, uh, the way that their expression of neurology will occur. Um, and so the way that, that it works um, is that Every experience, every interaction that a mother has with a child grows the brain of the child. It grows the, um, the neurons in the child. So every physical touch, every time that you feed a child, every time that you hold a child, every time that you sing, a child, sing to a child, everything that you do 
grows their neurology. So if you want to break it down, it really comes down to kind of three basic ways. The first one is just physical, physical engagement. Um, every time you're, you're feeding, hugging, bathing a child, it's just growing their neurology. And then the next one is just the emotional engagement. Every time you tell them you love them, they're special, how precious they are, how wonderful they are. Every time you, um, you, know, you talk to them about emotions, sadness, you show up when they're sad, you, you love on them, um, that grows their neurology. And then lastly, which we sort of consider traditional parenting, is just when you tell them what to do, not to do, when you say, okay, this is how you brush your teeth, this is, that's also growing their neurology. So all those different things are occurring all at the same time. And it's not theoretical, it's literally physiological growth. Little neurons are growing that are related to the way that parents engage to their children. But the, the hard part is that what we also realize is every time a child is being yelled at, every time a child is being insulted, every time a child is being shut down, is being um, treated badly, is, is not getting what they need, is, is being exposed to you know, abuse, uh, anything that you can think of in the same way that we are so excited of how neurobiology grows in a loving and caring home, that neurobiology also grows for children who are not in a, um, in a safe place. And so their neurobiology basically is conditioned to fear, to self-protect, to, um, to basically be um, reactive, um, and sadly, they're, um, they're what we call sort of like the amygdala hijack, that they're always hypervigilant. They're always, um, you know, uh, expecting the worst. And that they earned that. Like they got it. It wasn't like they just started out that way. It's because of their early childhood experiences. And because of that, what you, what you begin to see is, is the connection between attachment and neurobiology in that the child has difficulty connecting to others. If we learn how to connect and attach from our early relationships with our parents, and, and the better they connect with us, the, the, the more we connect with others, well, what happens when we don't have those experiences, when we don't have those reflections? And so you begin to see the relational breakdown that occurs. Wow. I mean, that's like 360 view of that. Now, what I'm wondering is if you've made it to adulthood, if you are lacking or, you know, haven't had some of those physiological components, how do you kind of retrain the brain or reverse the, the impact of the deficit? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And the truth of the matter is it's really all of us, right? Like even those of us who didn't grow up in abusive, neglectful homes, um, there's still a lot of challenges that maybe we have relationally, challenges of how to maintain relationships, how to be in a marriage, how to care for other people, um, how to ask for help when we need it. I mean, these are all um, wonderful adaptive skills that would help us, but most of us didn't get that. Most of us got, you know, different forms of manipulation or different forms of, um, you know, self-preservation. And so, yeah, we all have this question, and I think it's, it's relevant to every adult, is, um, you know, how are you making those connections with others? I think the first thing we have to redefine, I talked about this before, you have to redefine what success is. If you think it's going to be finances, if it's going to be your job, if it's going to be money, if it's going to be power, you know, then, then you're heading for a, you're going for a different route. And, and, and that's fine. Many people do. Um, and so neurologically, when we talk about, um, you know, neurological health, 
um, that's not necessarily what they would be going for. So if someone is pushing toward, you know, climbing the ladder and moving on that, that's great. But neurologically, if we're going to talk about what neurological health is, is the ability to maintain relationships with others. And if that's the goal, then guess what? We all have to learn some skills. And so if I could break it down in two sort of different ways, um, and, and really this is just from attachment theory itself, for some people, um, the brokenness occurs in their inability to feel. In their in what basically what you would consider to be it's called what you grow up in a in a dismissive um, attachment style in that they were never given the freedom to express themselves ex the freedom to truly feel the the freedom to uh, to be emotionally vulnerable to to be able to express those things because those were not safe in their childhood so you have a lot of people who are going around. And um, although they experience emotions in some ways, they have never really connected to the deepest parts of, of what we consider the limbic system, the deepest parts, and because they've never been allowed to. And so emotions are very, very dangerous to them. Um, it feels very, very scary to see people who are emotional. And a lot of that is because if you can think about it, their neurology is very fragile. And if you put too much emotion into it, their neurology literally is not used to that much intensity or that emotion. And so they literally go into like a fight, fight or freeze response. And so that's one side of the coin. If you go to the other side, what you end up with um, is most people, most of like myself, we have a neurology that was overexposed to emotion, overexposed to chaos, overexposed to maybe yelling, fighting, whatever. And so we are um, what we call entangled. So that some of us may have a lot more emotion, a lot more difficulty managing it. So you have some people who have difficulty feeling, and you have other people who are feeling too much all the time. And, and so before I would say, if you wanna heal as an adult, you should do whatever. I think the first thing you gotta figure out is who are you? Who, where, do you where do you land on that? Are you someone that has a hard time with emotion? That, that likes to shut it down and says, we're not going here, we're not gonna do this, that is constantly afraid to, to allow it to, to um, be expressed, then part of your journey is gonna be that um, moving into um, uh, those places that are a little scary, maybe asking more difficult questions, maybe going back a little bit and saying, okay, what really happened in my childhood? Um, the hard part about uh, dismiss people who come from a dismissive attachment style is they are dismissive about the fact that they're dismissive. So most dismissive people actually think they're healthy, but they don't have the ability to be safe because when someone comes to them with extreme emotion, they don't want, they're not doing it. They're not going there. And so they're real good at providing care. But when it talks about like true emotional Empathetic safety, they don't have the neurology for it. Um, and then the rest of us who are more entangled, we're kind of easy to pick out, right? We're, we're the people who are having trouble managing relationships. Uh, we have a lot of, maybe there's drama, chaos. Um, we overreact. Um, and so I think the first step is just figuring out, like, where do you stand? Where, where is your neurology? Immediately, when I listen to this, I start to giggle because I think of who I am, where I am, and I always think, oh, I'm neurotypical. I'm normal. And then I'm like, oh, no, 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 I've got some work to do. I don't know where I am on the spectrum. But what I really would like to know is 
How can one mitigate any damage done to become more mindful? Yeah, so I think once you begin to go down this journey of addressing your own neurology and really looking at it from the standpoint of how are you interacting with other people and are how healthy are your relationships, um, then I think that mindfulness is kind of that first step to, to mitigating the... Um, you know, the effects of your, of your childhood, the effects of your parents. I think one of the best things that happened to me was I got married and all of a sudden now I have someone else who is now reflecting to me, you know, my neurology. And if we've learned anything from addiction is the first step is just acknowledging who you are. Like just acknowledge, like, this is hard for me. I'm not good at this. Or I, I struggle with this. Or you're right. That triggers me. Or you're right. I have a hard time feeling. Um, for those people who are dismissive, a lot of times they may not be very good at, at feeling emotions and all they feel is anger, happiness or anger. And so, you know, learning how and saying, I have a hard time feeling vulnerable. I don't like that feeling mm -hmm. and I won't be there very long. And so maybe I need to start learning to discern my emotions a little more effectively instead of just going straight to anger. You know, those are the, th that's part of the journey. Uh, boy, and I tell you, once you get on that journey, it's pretty fun because you begin to realize like there's just so much um, potential and change. Now, there's some things that, I mean, are just part of your personality, part of your neurology. You know, I will always be uh, dramatic. I will always be emotional. That's me. Like, and I'm cool with that. Like, I've learned to accept it. Um, I've just had to learn to apologize sometimes. Um, and so, that, you know, so how much can you change? How much can you not? But, but once you begin the process of doing it, then it begins to transform your relationships. And I think that's the best part. Um, that it can transform the way that you engage with your kids, the way you engage with your spouse, the way you engage with your, um, with your staff. We associate so much of, of um, behaviors, especially with kids and teenagers, we associate with their frontal cortex and we don't understand all the neurology that's underneath, their whole limbic system, even the neurology inside their body. And so because we attribute it all to frontal cortex, when a kid is misbehaving, which I don't really call misbehaving anymore. I call it maladaptive skills. When a kid, kid shows maladaptive skills, we almost always associate it with defiance, with willfulness, or even evil. And we don't understand um, the complexity that has led this child to this point that is showing us, that is, that is showing us these behaviors. But it is so much more complicated. And the truth of the matter is, if you truly could see into the neurology of a child, into their history, you wouldn't see them as evil, defiant, um, you know, a jerk or, you know, a brat or whatever, you know, having tantrums, whatever, what you actually would see is, is you'd have compassion because you would see like, wow, this is where this came from. This is why this behavior has worked for him in the past. And, and now I'm actually learned that the best way to, to help children in need is to go from the bottom up. Is starting with their body, working your way up through the limbic system and all the emotions, and then getting to the frontal cortex. As a parent, I'm like, can you please come to my house? You mentioned a couple of characteristics, and I'm like, my teenager, yes, she's evil. Yes, she's crazy. Yes, she misbehaves. But now I'm wondering, oh, my goodness, is there inflammation? You know, that could be the root cause. So for the parents that are listening, what would you recommend, or how can they build that connection with their children or how, like my child is now 14, one of my kids, and I'm wondering, oh my gosh, did I do a disservice all these years? What do I do now? We've got, you know, a couple more years left. What can I do to really secure a decent attachment style? Yeah, so I would definitely say um, if you wanted kind of like a, a simple rundown, um, the first thing that 
you always want to start with is just safety. It always has, a child has to feel safe. So physical safety, emotional safety, um, you know, um, always trying to make them feel safe. Um, it, it's, it's the, we underestimate fear. We underestimate anxiety that children have. We underestimate all that stuff. And a lot of times, especially before they're, they're in their early 20s, they can't really verbalize it. And so you always have to be assessing to make sure, and I'm not talking about like safety with like helmets and stuff like that. I'm talking about like the ability for them to come to you when they're in need. And are you available? Are you available to your kids when they're in need? Are you a safe base? And if you're running a million miles an hour and you're not at home and you're never available, you're not, you're not doing the job. Like it's in those moments where, where they're tired, maybe when you're driving them home from school, it's in those moments that all of a sudden you get a glimpse of, of, of the real kid, of something that's triggering them, something that's hard for them. Um, and you don't see it much with teenagers, but every once in a while you see the window of it. And it's just so special. It's just so heartwarming because you're like, oh, my gosh, I love this child. Right. And most of the time you don't feel those emotions, but but it starts with safety. And then the next one you mentioned is just connection. It starts with safety and then connection. And so connection is just finding ways to engage. And, and it's hard because a lot of times, especially when you have teenagers, you're getting rejected a lot. Um, you know, they, they want to kind of grow in their independence, and rightfully they should. Um, but it's hard not to take it personally. But, but what are the ways that you're connecting? What are the ways, um, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the important things is it's never my child's responsibility to find ways to connect with me. It's my responsibility to find ways to connect to my child. So I'm not going to tell my kid, hey, let's go work on my truck, because that's him doing something that I like. And although there's some benefit to that, in old school we'd say, oh, that's so great. The truth of the matter is, like, that, that's pretty authoritarian. I want to know what he likes. What is it that he wants to do? Or what is it that she wants to do? And so... Um, I've talked about it in the past, but I've, I've done some crazy stuff. Like I've learned how to play Fortnite, which is a video game. I don't even know if you know what that is. You know what that is? Or? I sure okay, do. Okay, good. So Fortnite, I've learned how to play Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I've learned how to, um, you know, I get involved with, with my son's basketball. My other son loves piano. So I'm having to, and it's sacrificial. I'm paying for pianos. I'm paying for video games. I'm paying for basketball tickets. Like I'm doing a lot of stuff, but that's my attempt to connect. And then if I've done that well and I've done my safety and my connection, then I get to do the other parenting stuff, which is like the correcting, which is the, okay, you need to, you know, wear more deodorant because you stink. You're, you know, I, you, this is how you brush your teeth better. This is how you, you know, all the things that we sort of see as what parenting is, mm -hmm. is actually um, kind of the last part. Parenting is allowing those, the children, the, your children to grow and become who they are and you be in a safe place mm -hmm. to, uh, um, to encourage that and to participate in that. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They're going to look very different than what you want oh, and yes. what you expect. Um, but ultimately, the goal is for them to be able to have relationships with others. And relationships are a very powerful tool. My husband and I talk about that all the time. Relationships are truly what uh, matter and to help you get along in life. You literally can measure the um, like happiness and satisfaction of someone's life based on the meaningful relationships that they have. 
And you know what? I have realized that there's a certain level of vulnerability that comes with making connections. Um, and I say that just probably more so from my standpoint. So I don't know, again, where I am on that spectrum of attachment styles. But <laughs> I notice that sometimes I have to step outside of the um, anxiety that comes with um, vulnerability. I mean, immediately when you said that word, I'm like, ooh, a little tension in the shoulders. How do How do people... I guess get over that. Is it just counseling or no <laughs> yoga? No, and 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 the the problem is, is that when I say like relationships are the most important thing, you know, for those people who are afraid or have been hurt in the past, if they just go out and say, oh, well, this is the most important thing, uh, very quickly we realize that relationships are extremely difficult and painful and damaging, and and, and so um, you know, so I think the the answer's in the middle. It really is. Uh, what we find when we um, become more and more secure, the more secure we become in ourselves without other people having to validate us all, then the more we can be there for other people. And so two realities exist. One reality is, is that I'm secure in myself and I don't need the external validation of everybody else. But the other reality is I need everyone else because alone I'm screwed. So here I am managing those two realities. And I find it interesting, I can only relate to this in my relationship with my wife, is that it just seems like nature has a funny way of that. When I'm vulnerable and I need help, she's there for me. And then when she's vulnerable and she needs help, I show up for her. And as long as we can kind of both do that, and in the moments where she's struggling and she may not be the nicest person, I don't freak out, I don't lose it, and just say, how dare you treat me this way? I just, I give her compassion, I say she's having a hard time. I go kind of do my own self-care, right? I kind of, I take walks, I kind of like, okay, she's having a hard time. I do my own independent work, which is me, my own security, so that I can then be there for her. But then when I'm struggling, I have to be vulnerable, um, and I have to ask her for help. And lo and behold, when I do that, even though she may have a million other things, she shows up for me. And so that dance is really, really, um, it's special. And I will tell you that the moment I get off this conversation, I'll go right back into the mix of like my wife being frustrated with something I didn't do, or I won't show up for her. And so how do you do it? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I think you're just constantly uh, managing your own insecurity, reminding yourself of your own value, reminding yourself of your own, um, of assuming your own space, but then at the same time, reminding yourself that you're not an island, that you can't do it alone, that you're better, you're in the best position when you're in relationships with others. The trick to it is, is you, the problem is, is if you convince yourself of one truth and you live by that truth alone. Then, then the truth, then if, if you only get your validation and support from other people, then your whole life will be you seeking that attaboy or seeking that blessing from someone else. And you will become, you know, constantly at the mercy of everyone's words, everyone's, whether they like you or not. And that is not secure. Or that you become so independent, so self-sufficient, so um, resistant to, to um you know, vulnerability, so resistant to um, being in a relationship that you become um, isolated. 
and then and that is that's horrible and so if you can manage the complexity of both sides of the of the equation that both you need people but you are securing yourself then then that's the journey if you fall into one of them then then you begin to fall into what i would consider to be neurologically unhealthy i really speak from my standpoint because with all that has happened and i know we're all tired of you know current state of society but relationships are, the relationship function has been jeopardized. I think from social distancing to quarantine, and it's so impactful just to hear how important those relationships are, but also when there's downtime, the work that we really have to do internally to understand who we are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all taken a massive hit in, um, you know, in our neurobiology, because I think what we're experiencing now more than ever is, is kind of what we, I would call global insecurity. And whether it's the politics, what's happening in the world, the fact that we're all on Facebook and we get news dropped right to us, whatever it is, um, uh, you know, and then obviously you had COVID, it just creates so many more um, uh, opportunities for our mind to find evidence to say that we're not safe. And, and it can be extremely neurologically overwhelming. Um, because what happens is when we are afraid and we feel like we're not safe, um, our neurology changes and it prepares for winter, if you will. And it prepares, it increases our cortisol level, it increases our stress hormones, um, and it puts us in a different neurological state where we are more reactive. And sadly, um, although us being... um, in a kind of a protection state neurologically, although that's very um, historically has been good for us, right? Like that's helped us keep us safe, right? Like that's what keeps us alive when animals are attacking us and keeps us um, prepared for whatever challenges we have. Like it's good when our bodies do that. Um, It can be very destructive to our relationships. A neurobiology that is in in sort of that self-protective mode is not able to provide care, is not able to receive care, is not able to um, be present. And so our global insecurities make us more reactive, make us more aggressive or more withdrawn. I did some work with a counselor about the vagal nervous system. And it was really interesting because then I understood how sometimes I'm stuck at the bottom of the ladder. And I'm like, I don't care if I went and ran a mile. I'm not going, it's not going to help me to climb that ladder. I really have to be present, be mindful in where I am, realize there are no threats, and then come out of the box, you know? So I think that nowadays, you know, and some people want the practical, what can I do? Can I plant a flower? Well, there's some work that has to be done. And you really have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable to do the hard work. Absolutely, absolutely. What's really cool about it, though, is it's not as complicated as it sounds, a lot of it is just, once you start with mindfulness, a lot of it is just um, starting to start with paying attention to your body. Um, I think that's one of the first things you want to do is just pay attention to how is your body reacting, how is your, you know, what, what you're eating, um, how are you sleeping, um, you know, what are the ways that you're empowering your body or you're not. Um, some of the things that I, I've, I've done um, 
nowadays is I eat avocado every day. Like that's just something I do. And it provides some nutrition to my body. It's a superfood. But it also gives me a little bit of an emotional boost because I feel like I'm kind of living like a king by eating an avocado every day, which is silly. But to me, like avocados are for special days. And now every day, yeah, every day special. Um, you know, taking walks with my dog. I walk my dog every night. Um, now playing Fortnite is ways that I really like that. It, it's self-care is what it is. If I'm just doing it sort of on autopilot and I'm not really paying attention to it and I'm just, you know, eating corn chips all day and watching TV or whatever, um, it, it doesn't move the needle because my body's just on autopilot. It's going to do whatever it's going to do. And I don't have what we call integration, neurological integration. But when I integrate it as, okay, this walk is to help me calm down a little bit because I'm frustrated, or this walk is to help me process a certain situation I'm having with maybe my son that's really frustrating. When now I'm combining the walking, I'm combining my emotion, and I'm combining the thoughts, I have what's called neurointegration. And that's mindfulness. It's not just about, you know, sort of like, I'm going to go work out for an hour and, and thinking like, okay, now I took care of my body. Now I'm going to take care of my emotions. No, mindfulness is integrating all of it into the experience of processing through. Like you said, my body right now, I'm in the basement. How do I get, you know, go up the ladder? And, and what are the steps I'm going to do that? Well, you're using the frontal cortex to help your body get up the ladder. That's integration. That's the top of your brain helping the bottom of your neurology work itself through. And then when you do that and you make those connections, man, that is, that's mindfulness 101. We definitely have a homework assignment. So folks, you heard it here first. Open yourselves up to new opportunities, new relationships, and don't seek validation. I love that, and I can live by that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. So thanks for joining us, Bill. Really quickly, um, do you want to leave any, uh, I guess, resources or ways that they can connect with you to hear more? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so much information now out there. Um, a new book, The Power, Power, um, the Power of Showing Up by Dr. Siegel is so good. Um, you know, Dr. Karen Purvis does a lot of work, Dr. Bruce Perry. So there's so much great stuff out there where they're now combining attachment styles, neurobiology. Um, uh, I love Brene Brown. Uh, her work with vulnerability is so powerful. So, you know, podcasts, any books, um, we always have resources. You know, uh, Glad University obviously has a lot of trainings. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It has been such a pleasure and definitely just eye-opening. Thanks for listening to Reframed. Visit GladneyUniversity.org to access the show notes and learn about upcoming trainings at Gladney University. We'd love your feedback, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.